This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm an emergency critical care veterinary specialist. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kelly Deal from the Morris Animal Foundation about the newest updates that you as a pet owner need to know when it comes to keeping your dog or cat or horse safe. We'll be right back after these messages. As a veterinarian, I want you to keep your dog as healthy and happy as possible. Well, you may have read a lot about bone broth's benefits for dogs, but if you're like me, you're too busy to cook bones for hours. So why not check out Rockwell Pets Pro Natural Dog Bone Broth? It comes in the convenience of a dry product, and you just sprinkle the powder on top of your dog's regular meal. It helps relieve arthritis pain with its anti-inflammatory turmeric and boosts appetite, even for finicky eaters. Plus, it's fast and easy, and you don't have to boil any bones. It's vet approved, made in the U.S., and comes with a money-back guarantee. For more information, check out rockwellpetspro.com. That's rockwellpetspro.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Super excited to speak with Dr. Kelly Deal, who's a board-certified internal medicine specialist and the senior director of science and communications at Morse Animal Foundation. Dr. Deal, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Justine. I really appreciate you having me on. So love what you do as a veterinarian and as a pet owner at Morse Animal Foundation. And for those of you guys who don't know what that is, Morse Animal Foundation is a granting agency. It's an animal health-based charity. It's based out of Colorado in the United States, and it funds veterinary research for companion animals, horses, and wildlife, and they fund it all around the world. Dr. Deal, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about who you are, what you do, or any more information about Morris? Sure. Um, We've been around a long time, actually. We've been around since 1948, and we were founded by a veterinarian, Dr. Mark Morris Sr. And Dr. Morris was really concerned about the lack of research that was really designed to, to help animals and to help understand problems that were really specific to animals. And so he started the foundation back in 1948, as I mentioned, and we started first with funding health studies on horses and cats and dogs, and then moved pretty quickly to horses and then added wildlife, oh, in the late 1960s. And we get grants submitted to us, as you mentioned, from all around the world with all different kinds of problems affecting pets as well as wildlife. 
Thank you so much. Now, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions because I think a lot of pet owners don't understand, first of all, what, quote, animal research is. Animal research, especially when it's funded, it helps promote health in investigating certain diseases. And I know you guys are specifically looking at a few things with Morris Animal Foundation. Now, the first thing I wanted to talk about is, can you give some examples of what you're funding just so our pet owners have an idea? Absolutely. We have a pretty wide portfolio on the different types of diseases we fund, but one that I know is going to be familiar with everyone out there is canine parvovirus, right? It's been around for a long time. It first arose in 1978, parvo as we recognize it. And interestingly, Morris Animal Foundation was one of the first groups to kind of jump in when this horrible disease first came about in 1978. And we were one of the people who contributed to funding the first vaccine. So a lot of the research that we funded uh, eventually morphed into the parvovirus vaccine. And then we continued to fund research that actually tweaked it, made it better, worked on diagnostic tests. So there's Parvo, you know, 1978. Well, we're still funding studies on it. And we have a new one, interestingly, with the same group, at Cornell University that we funded back in 1978. So we're funding them again because they're looking at uh, variants and mutants of canine parvovirus. I think everybody kind of is real sensitized to that because of COVID-19. And it's for the same reasons. Every once in a while, we feel, right, as veterinarians, and we may experience it as pet owners, that the parvovirus vaccine did it not work quite right. We have a pet that develops the disease anyway. And so what these folks are looking at, and obviously they've got a lot of experience looking at parvovirus, is they're looking at variants and whether these variants can escape, right, the immune system and how we might learn from what they're looking at to make the better parvovirus vaccine. To know I'm also a Cornell alum, so I love to hear that. But, you know, it's so sad that a disease that kills dogs and it's 99% preventable with vaccination that we're still seeing that. So I see that all the time in the veterinary ER where, you know, a puppy will come in, they're rescued, they were brought up from somewhere uh, by an animal rescue group. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is a lot of these dogs haven't had any immune protection. So they get vomiting, diarrhea, they get severely dehydrated. They get a life-threateningly low blood sugar, and it can be very expensive to treat a couple thousand dollars. So again, reiterates the importance of making sure that your puppy, your kitten are up to date and they go through a full puppy and kitten series. That's three to five vaccines. So love that you guys are doing research on Parvo and the vaccination. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you. I think, um, as you mentioned, I mean, I don't want people to get nervous like the vaccine isn't good, right? Because we know we know it is good, but I think we can tweak it and make it better. And what the group is looking at is exactly what you're saying, which is uh, just taking a really deep dive into the immunity that's stimulated by vaccines. We know that it's different between different individuals and that's their whole um, plan right now is they've got some information from samples they've banked since 1978. 
And also looking at dogs coming into the clinic now, not necessarily sick, but sick dogs, healthy dogs, and they're with different vaccination statuses and looking at, again, the immune system and the immune response in order to, you know, if we can tweak it a little more, right, and make it more effective, that would be fantastic for dog owners everywhere. Now, do you mind just telling me a little bit more? I know you guys are funding some research on diet-induced dilated cardiomyopathy. This is what we call DCM. And we've done a previous episode on DCM before. We've done one extensively on grain-free food and what you need to know. But for those of you guys who missed that episode on ERVET, please make sure to check back on that. The biggest thing that we need to know about is more recently, within the past one to two to three years, what some veterinary cardiologists were finding was that dogs that were on boutique exotic grain-free diets were developing this unusual thinning of the musculature of the heart. And the heart became too floppy and it became too big and it wasn't able to contract well. And that resulted in secondary congestive heart failure where there was too much fluid backing up into the lungs. This is inherited in certain breeds. We know we see it more in Great Danes, Irish Wolfhounds, Dobermans, but unfortunately we were all of a sudden seeing it with diet. And this was a little bit scary. If you're not sure, when in doubt, you can always just look at the FDA website. Uh, they have great information on some of the brands. But Dr. Deal, do you mind just giving us a little bit more information about some of the research results or the research that you guys are funding and any preliminary answers on this diet-induced DCM? Right. So we have a study that's in progress right now, and it is a sub study of our very large golden retriever lifetime study, which is where we're following goldens through their lifetime. And golden retrievers, especially when this diet-induced dilated cardiomyopathy sort of started rearing up, that was one of the breeds that it was noted in. And it's not that goldens didn't get DCM, right? We knew that, but they're not, as you mentioned, one of the big breeds, right, that we always thought of as having dilated cardiomyopathy. So that was curious. And again, there was some implication that they were eating, again, as you mentioned, that BEG diet acronym, so Boutique Exotic Ingredients Grain-Free. And what Dr. Josh Stern, who is the principal investigator of the study that we're collaborating on, is he came to us because we have all these golden retrievers, right? They're just out there eating whatever diet, living their lives. But we did know that some of them developed dilated cardiomyopathy. And what he did is come to us and say, look, I want you to give me samples because we collect samples on these dogs for years. And I want to look at, give me a bunch of dogs that never developed dilated cardiomyopathy. Give me a bunch of dogs that did. Give me some diet data on these guys. And he also specified, also give me some blood on guys eating diets, right, that have been implicated in this particular problem. And he's got all these blood samples and a lot of, of course, data on the dogs, you know, did they have signs? Did they not have signs? When did their signs start? What was the outcome of this process? What was did their workup look like? And he's got all of that information, including, quote, healthy dogs, right, that didn't seem to have any problems. And he's analyzing it to try to answer a couple of questions that we still 
don't really have a good grasp on, right? I think there was a lot of discussion in the beginning about a amino acid called taurine. And we know that taurine deficiency in cats was associated with dilated cardiomyopathy way back when, 1987, that was published. And by adding taurine to cat commercial diets, pretty much we eliminated this disease. I'm old enough, I hate to admit it, to remember when we would see cats with dilated cardiomyopathy. And then when I was in practice, I never saw another one probably after 1988, 89. Well, they're looking at that was a amino acid that was implicated, right? And there was some evidence, but now we know it's much more complicated, right? There's not always a quote, taurine deficiency in some of the animals that are getting dilated cardiomyopathy. So, but Dr. Stern's kind of trying to suss all that out. So he's measuring all these different amino acids. He's looking at the dogs genetically a bit. He's looking also, another question we don't have a good grip on is when does maybe a deficiency start? Let's say it is taurine. Well, he's got enough samples banked over years in these dogs that he could look and say, wow, maybe it started couple of years ago, or maybe it didn't, and try to get a little bit of a better handle on the timing. He's still crunching numbers, but I know he's done an all, a lot of his analysis, and we are really excited because we're hoping he will have something published within the next year that may answer some of these questions for us, at least in Golden Retrievers. You know, it is scary because, you know, most golden retriever owners are so cognizant. They're so aware of diseases that often occur in golden retrievers. They know they often get a cancer called hemangiosarcoma. But when all of a sudden their dog started getting DCM, this was so rare and so unheard of. And so I'm so glad that cardiologists were able to identify this. I'm so glad that you guys are supporting that research just so we can find out what's going on. Now, I also wanted to ask you a question about inbreeding. What do we know when it comes to genetic inbreeding in some of our breeds of dogs and cats that are out there? Do you mind just telling me if there's any research and more importantly, what the findings are and how we could potentially avoid some of this? Right. Well, I think intuitively, everyone who's out there knows that probably that inbreeding can be a problem, right? And we know that, well, you wouldn't want to do a brother sister necessarily mating, like, of course, that might produce problems over over time. But we also have to think about our purebred animals, especially dogs, right? And I got a Labrador, so I've got a purebred lab, that there are there's a certain amount of inbreeding that happened, right? Because they're Labradors or they're golden retrievers. So we know that they're, there's some, you know, they're kind of homogeneous in some way because that's how, that's why they are what they are, right? They're not mixed breed dogs. They're a purebred dog. But we also want to know how do we address inbreeding and how do we look at it? The way we used to look at it and for decades, right, was you get a pedigree, right? And you look and you go, oh, do they share a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, you know, and you, you look at pedigree tables. But what we funded, again, out of the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study um, provided samples for was to really look at it from a DNA level, right? We've got the technology now, we um, can look at the genetic code and use the genetic code to help us determine inbreeding coefficients 
coefficients, which is how closely related individuals are. And we did a study with Embark, which many people out there may be familiar with. It's kind of sort of like one of those 23andMe (laughs) kind of companies for dogs. And we worked with them to look at, they looked at the DNA of a bunch of our dogs to try to look at inbreeding, but from a very scientific and technical aspect versus just looking at big giant pedigree charts. And they were able to show, of course, the closer the inbreeding coefficient as calculated using DNA, which I know is all very technical, but hang in there with me, was associated with decrease in litter size, which we had kind of heard from some of our participants in the study that they felt like people who have been breeders for a long time felt like, well, you know, we used to get lots of, have lots more puppies and now we're not getting as many puppies and the puppies are healthy, but the litters are smaller. So that was one of the things that our collaboration with Embark and they published this research, again, trying to put some numbers around this, but also kind of give an example of how you could do this for other breeds with the idea then people could make better decisions on on when they uh, breed individuals rather than just looking at a pedigree, if that makes sense. Great information. So what are your general recommendations for finding a good breeder? Oh, as far as finding a good breeder, you know, a lot of folks probably right now are not going to have a high degree of genetic analysis, you know, that detail, but there are a lot of genetic tests out there and there are guidelines that even a pet owner who's just listening and saying, you know, I think I want to buy a boxer or for me, a Labrador retriever that you can go to and look at. There are recommendations made and by breed clubs as well. AKC supports some of these that you can see what should be tested for before you purchase a particular breed of dog, the recommendations. And I think there are many great breeders out there who screen dogs, right, for this variety of diseases. But for the consumer, this is not secret. You can actually go. One is the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals, which is OFA, which you're probably familiar with. We always think of them as like the hip dysplasia people, but they have quite an extensive list of diseases that you should screen for, or as a consumer, you should be asking a breeder, did you look for these things? And they have a ton of information. AKC likewise has really, really good information on their website. I don't know this website off the top of my head, but the doctor who Justine, you probably know is Urs Giger and that's U-R-S is his first name. (laughs) And Giger, he's G-I-E-G-E-R. He's been around, I don't want to say a long time because he'd probably get mad at me, but (laughs) Dr. Giger has been around a long time. He's at University of Pennsylvania, but his whole jam is genetic diseases and he has information. So again, if I were to counsel people out there, as far as looking at genetic diseases, we're learning more and more and more all the time. We're finding some genetic abnormalities is go to these websites. What can be problematic is looking at, and this is going to sound kind of snarky, but it's not meant to be this way, is if you just get genetic tests on your animal, just like we would get 23andMe, right? And you can ask for the quote, the medical part of it, right? And it's going to give you some idea, like you may be prone to this, or you might be prone to this. 
we can pick up genetic mutations, but we don't always know what they mean. And we would not want people to make decisions just because they've got an animal that has a mutation, if that makes sense, because it may not mean anything. But these websites are really, really good at sort of sifting through that information and telling you what you should be asking about. Such great information. Thank you so much, Dr. Deal. You know, I can't tell you every single day I will have a friend or a, an acquaintance contact me and say, Hey, how do I find a good breeder? And, you know, a lot of people will say, Don't breed or buy when a homeless animals die. You know, if you want to rescue a dog, absolutely. All my dogs are rescues. But I will say there are definitely some breeds that have known characteristics. When you get a golden retriever, they're known for being super, super amazing, friendly family dogs. When you get a German short hair pointer, they're known to have very strong hunting instincts. They need a lot of energy, a lot of exercise. You know, so I always say if you have a particular breed, absolutely. If that's something that you want to go with, go with it. But you do have to do your research. Uh, make sure you find a good breeder. Really important. Justine, I totally agree with you. And again, these are not secret places. They're available to anyone to look at. Thank you so much. And, you know, I love the point that you said a good breeder is always going to test their puppies or their kittens. And oftentimes veterinary cardiologists, veterinary ophthalmologists, they are so lucky because they get a whole kennel of puppies that are visiting them in one appointment because the breed are so responsible and they're checking the eyes, they're checking the heart to make sure genetic diseases aren't being passed along. So when in doubt, a good breeder is going to test for some of these problems that can be seen in this breed. We'll continue with this really important topic right after these messages from our sponsors. As a veterinarian, I want you to keep your dog as healthy and happy as possible. After all, our dogs reward us with fun, laughs, love, and a ton of affection. Well, what better way to reward your dog's loving companionship with Rockwell's Pets Pro Natural Dog Vitamins? These vitamins help provide a powerful fusion of amino acids, trace minerals, vitamins, digestive enzymes, aloe vera, and glucosamine, which helps support a healthy canine metabolism and promotes a strong immune system. Plus, they're 100% satisfaction guaranteed and produced in the United States. Help give your dog a healthy skin coat, healthy hips and joints, and immune support. For more information, go to rockwellpetspro.com. That's rockwellpetspro.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. So excited to be speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal from the Morse Animal Foundation. And we're talking about some of the amazing research that they fund that helps improve the survival, the quality of life, and the overall health of our pets. So far, we've talked about the importance of parvovirus. We've talked about the importance of diet-induced dilated cardiomyopathy and what you need to know, what you need to know about finding a good breeder. Now, Dr. Dia, the next part I wanted to ask you about 
supplements. Now, I know Morse Animal Foundation has supported some research in certain areas of medication, whether or not they're supplements or prescription medications. And I was just wondering, you know, when it comes to over-the-counter medications like CBD or cranberry extract, or even veterinary or over-the-counter probiotics, do you mind just giving us some information on some of the studies Morse Animal Foundation has funded what are the real world applications? What are the results? Should I be investing and paying for this stuff? <laughs> That's a good, a good question. We have done a fair number of studies over the years, right? Looking at medications. And I think as a veterinarian and, you know, I practiced, you practice is there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets into the lore, right? Like, we think this works. So we think this doesn't work. And we don't always test things or we adopt things from human medicine, right? And we think, well, this can't hurt or this will work. Or we adopt in, let's say, cats, something we do in dogs. And we've done a lot of work looking at that. So one of the things that we did very recently was looking at the use of acid blockers in cats with chronic kidney disease. And I think for cat owners, I mean, this is like so common, right? Every 80% plus of cats over 15 have some kind of kidney disease. And I think, you know, as a clinician and as a longtime cat owner, I think I have lost more cats, right, to chronic kidney disease ultimately, right? That's what they, they die of than other diseases. And there's lots of treatments recommended. And one of them was acid blocking. And this was extrapolated a bit from people who do tend to get little ulcers in their stomach with chronic kidney disease. And I think we thought, well, I, or at least I was taught, well, maybe cats get this, they tend to vomit, right? So that's one of the signs we see. So maybe they need acid blockers too. And I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and it got into the literature that this was a good thing to do. Well, we had a, a researcher, Dr. Katie Tolbert, who's now at Texas A&M, and Katie wasn't convinced that acid blockade really made a difference. And it came from a couple different areas. And she decided to look at this very critically in cats using very sophisticated measurements in you know, live cats with doing their, you know, just out there on acid and acid in the stomach and whether acid blockade made any difference in chronic kidney disease cats. Part of that also was as a cat owner and everyone who's listening, cats are not a lot of fun to give pills to. And we tend to give with cats with kidney disease are often on lots of medications, right? Especially as their disease progresses. So anything that would spare us from giving something and what would be great. And what Katie found was really good evidence that giving acid blockade to cats with chronic kidney disease, just because, hey, they got chronic kidney disease, and maybe this would be a good idea, is really not necessarily necessary, actually. And so again, dropping something out that we don't need to give is helpful. We also know that the more drugs we give, the more potential interactions can happen that we may not even know about, right? We know a lot of drug interactions A plus B, but if you go A plus B plus C plus D, we may not know how those drugs interact. So again, dropping something out. And we also know that acid blockade is not as benign. We used to, I think I was taught, well, what could it really hurt? Well, it can hurt because we know that the gut, the bugs that live in our gut 
are really important. And if we mess around with the pH in our gut, we actually end up messing around with the gut bacteria, which is also maybe not a great idea, which brings us to the whole probiotic question. And we're looking at that in a variety of ways, but we did a study a few years ago. This was a, a good study, I guess, outcome where we looked at the use of probiotics in dogs receiving chemotherapy right, which we know often get a lot of GI upset. And the probiotics actually, though it wasn't a super strong response, do seem to help in preventing GI signs in dogs receiving chemotherapy. So there's an instance where you might want to actually add in, right, a medication to help these patients with uh, some of the GI upset that they can get from having chemotherapy. Another dog study that ended not that long ago was on the use of tramadol versus a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to treat osteoarthritis. And I think a lot of us with dogs, again, osteoarthritis is super common as they get older. Lots of dogs suffer from it. It's a big business, right? A lot of medications going out the door. Some of them have side effects. And we had a study out of University of Georgia that looked at tramadol, which is a opioid, and a lot of people take it, right, for pain management, and a conventional NSAID. So something sort of, in this case, they looked at uh, Rimadyl, which many of folks who have dogs are probably familiar with, and they looked at osteoarthritis pain. And tramadol was really kind of lousy. It wasn't like any better than placebo, but the non-steroidals were very good. And this was published. And I think the bottom line was, you know, as veterinarians, maybe shouldn't be prescribing things that don't work very well, that cost the owner money, that we should be looking for other alternatives. We've done, as far as other supplements, we've got a CBD one that we're still working on funding. As you can imagine, it's a study in Canada and we don't want to be like drug dealers in Canada. And there's a little bit about sending funding for doing these studies. So we're still working out the kinks of that, but I think it will be a great study. And it's looking at osteoarthritis in dogs. We have done another couple of pain studies on looking at chondroitin and glucosamine, which is a really, really right common supplement in dogs. And unfortunately, that was one of those studies where it was kind of, maybe they help, maybe they don't. But we're actually looking at that question again with our golden retrievers that we're following through their lifetime. Well, such important information. You know, I think one of the biggest takeaways you should be taking from this ER vet episode is if you are still giving your dog tramadol, please stop. It doesn't work based on this amazing study from University of Georgia, again, funded by Morse Animal Foundation. And I know Dr. Budsberg, he's an amazing researcher. But the key point was that tramadol, what they found in the study, tramadol does not work for the treatment of osteoarthritis. You should be talking to your veterinarian about different, safer, analgesics, which is a fancy way of saying pain medications. And it may be a veterinary non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Remember, never give any over-the-counter medication or a human medication to your dog or cat without talking to your vet or the ASPCA Animal Poison Control Center. But again, this was really pivotal research. Fantastic information. Dr. Deal, any last tidbits or do you mind just providing where pet owners can go to at Morse Animal Foundation for where they can support veterinary research to help extend our dogs and cats' lives? 
Absolutely. I would encourage everyone to check out our website, which is morrisanimalfoundation.org. And we have just tons of stuff there. We have a list of all of our active studies. We have many of our studies that have been recently concluded, so you can kind of scroll through. We have lists of publications. We have some blogs that deal with these issues that I just mentioned with a focus on our studies, as well as copies of some of our old newsletters, which also contain a lot of information. Dr. Deal, love what you do and really appreciate the time that you took to join us on today's episode. Well, thanks so much, Justine. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time. And again, we want to give a huge shout out to Morris Animal Foundation and Dr. Kelly Deal for all this amazing information. Also, a huge shout out to Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.